Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is 99 Luftballons, or in English, 99 Red Balloons, Part 2, where we discuss intra-aortic balloon pumps with special guest Dr. Ivan Rapchuk. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. So Ivan, thanks for joining us again. Oh, great to be here again, and thank you so much for getting me involved in this. No worries. I'm really hoping one day we can just have a whole episode where you educate me about ice hockey. (laughs) Don't tempt me. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not a sport I know a lot about, and I get quite interested in different, you know, things. So anyway, we'll cover that. Maybe we'll have a special deep breath, just fun chit-chat one, a bonus episode with some bloopers and all the other bits and pieces. (laughs) Okay, so look, we've already discussed the physiology of balloon pump. Um, how they're inserted and how they can be programmed. Uh, but let's move on to some more clinically relevant stuff. How do we know which patients will actually benefit from a balloon pump? Well, look, there's actually quite a few indications for balloon pump use. The main reasons are acute myocardial infarction. So the balloon pump improves hemodynamic instability by decreasing myocardial work and SVR while enhancing coronary perfusion. Ventricular dysrhythmias is another indication there's a stabilizing effect that the pump has on refractory ventricular ectopy after MI by increasing coronary perfusion pressures to reduce ischemia and transmyocardial wall stress, as well as maintaining adequate systemic perfusion. Cardiogenic shock, you'll see it used there, specifically for patients where pharmacological therapy hasn't really shown any improvement. Unstable angina, refractory to treatment, is a good indication, and in this instance, A balloon pump will facilitate percutaneous interventions or sometimes act as just a bridge to surgery. Refractory ventricular failure outside of the acute myocardial setting is also somewhere we'll see it used. So cardiomyopathies or myocardial damage as a result of myocarditis. In these patients, a balloon pump can aid progression to definitive treatment like a VAD or a transplant. Mm -hmm. And then stabilization during cardiac surgery. The elective placement is considered in patients with significant left main disease, severe LV dysfunction, heart failure, cardiomyopathy, chronic renal failure, or cerebrovascular disease. In these patients, weaning from bypass can be pretty complex. And in cases where there's prolonged aortic cross-clamp time for a complex procedure, or if sometimes only partial revascularization was able to be performed, the balloon pump's really helpful. So, if there's pre-existing myocardial dysfunction, 
prior to having surgery, that's also a good indication. Mm. If you can think about a aortic valve replacement in a low cardiac output state, mm. the balloon pump will bridge that heart to recovery post-surgically, maybe for a few days. Mm, that's a good point. Okay. Yeah. So this is just a little bit of a question I don't think we've given to you for preparation, but with ECMO coming along, is that sort of... Is that interfered at all in the indications for a balloon pump? Obviously, ECMO is you know a lot about oxygenation as well as providing sometimes a pump function. Yeah. So you're seeing less balloon pumps. Do you think now that ECMO has become a bit more popular? Yeah, or? definitely less balloon pumps post-operatively. Yeah. Okay. So pre-operative for the patient with the left main or the ongoing mm. chest pain post-cath, mm. you do get the balloons, but post-operatively. Those balloon pumps where we used to struggle out on three inotropes mm. and vasopressors with a balloon and we'd mm. limp to the unit. More commonly now, those patients will get ECMO. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. So, look, Ivan, regardless of the indication for its use, how do we know whether a balloon pump is actually working properly? Well, the console on the pump shows us three waveforms. It shows us the ECG, the arterial pressure waveform, and the balloon pressure waveform. So we know whether the balloon pump is functioning correctly by ensuring the critical points in these waveforms all line up and by looking at the morphology of the arterial pressure wave. Mm. When the balloon pump's functioning correctly, we see a few things. So as the balloon inflates at the start of diastole, a sharp and deep V is observed at the dichrotic notch, and the inflated balloon causes an increase in diastolic pressure, resulting in a second peak in the arterial pressure line. And this second peak is called diastolic augmentation, and it's ideally higher than the patient's systolic mm, pressure. Mm. There's a very small number of patients where the reduced uh, systemic vascular resistance and the stroke volume causes a bit of a decrease in augmentation, but it's almost always higher than systolic pressure. Okay. Mm. Now, when you're programming the balloon pump, you can select the ratio of the heartbeats you want assisted. You can assist every beat. We call this one-to-one, -one, or you can do it less often. For example, you can go one-to-two, one-to-three, or one-to-four beats and this will be reflected on the console waveform. As well as ensuring the proper balloon function through monitoring at the console, we can also assess the patient's hemodynamic status and the cardiac output. So their systemic perfusion is important, and then whether or not there's relief of their cardiac symptoms. Fair enough. Yeah, not only this, but we're always monitoring for early signs of complications, limb ischemia, balloon malposition, thrombus, bleeding, even infection in long-standing pumps. So Ivan, on that note, let's talk about suboptimal balloon pump timing. So look, there's four main ways in which the pump can incorrectly time the function of the balloon. Firstly, there's early balloon inflation. So if inflation occurs prior to closure of the aortic valve, it causes increased afterload. Mm. A couple of things happen with early inflation which completely ruin any benefit that the patient's going to get from the pump. So you get increased LV oxygen demand because of the increased afterload. You get decreased myocardial oxygen supply because of the decreased diastolic perfusion. And you get decreased cardiac output due to decreased stroke volume. Mm. The balloon inflates as the left ventricle is still contracting. Mm. So suddenly the heart's finding itself really difficult to contract, not only against the SVR, but now the extra pressure of an inflated balloon. Mm. As well as this, some blood will be forced backward into the ventricle when the aortic valve opens, and this will increase its volume and increase the wall stress on the LV. Mm. So diastolic augmentation is also wasted in early balloon inflation, and it'll occur when the ventricle is still contracting. 
So the subendocardial vessels are compressed by the contracting heart, and this increased coronary artery resi resistance results in reduced coronary perfusion and reduced blood flow, even though the diast diastolic augmentation peak is even higher. Mm -hmm. So the aortic valve closes prematurely, the duration of systole is reduced, and the stroke volume goes down. See, it's interesting, but when I was reading up and preparing for this episode, I read one resource that said, if your patient was already hemodynamically unstable, then this will really drive nails into their coffin, which, though it made me chuckle, is actually really true, hearing you explain everything that, that goes badly when this happens. So what's next then, Ivan? Well, just like you can have early inflation, you could actually have late inflation. Mm. So late balloon inflation, occurs when the inflation of the balloon happens markedly after closure of the aortic valve. This causes decreased diastolic augmentation and therefore suboptimal coronary perfusion. What we see is that the volume of blood that would have been displaced retrogradely with balloon inflation has already passed on. As well, the elastic recoil of the aorta that we talked about has already been spent. So this situation isn't the disaster we see with early balloon inflation. The mean diastolic pressure will still be increased, so the mm. coronary arteries may receive some more blood flow than if there was no balloon pump in situ. Yeah. Really, the issue here is that the, op the improvement you're going to get is not optimal. Okay. So, so the third thing we can see is early deflation of the balloon pump. Premature deflation during late diastole, it'll fail to decrease myocardial oxygen demand. What we see with early deflation is that the aortic pressure has time to equalize so that the end diastolic pressure returns to the patient's pressure from before the balloon was inserted. You'll still see some benefit from diastolic augmentation and improved coronary blood flow, but because there's no afterload reduction, you don't see the reduced myocardial oxygen demand. Mm, that's interesting. So finally, we can see late deflation of the balloon. Deflation after the onset of systole causes significantly increased afterload. Mm. This is bad, so what we see is that failure of deflation means the aortic end diastolic pressure doesn't have enough time to decrease by the time the left ventricle is ready to contract. Mm. So there's a period of time where the left ventricle is isovolumetrically contracting against a closed aortic valve, which is backed by an unnaturally raised end diastolic pressure. Since isovolumetric contraction is where the majority of oxygen consumption occurs, it's easy to see why raising the end diastolic pressure and the force of contraction needed to expel blood from the ventricle can really result in increased oxygen demand. Mm. So what we see in each of these scenarios is a slightly deranged arterial pressure waveform. Mm. So Ivan, just something else that we haven't actually pre-warned you about, but just a quick question. Patients who are awake with a balloon pump in, uh, how much like do they experience much discomfort? Is it just really the groin site that gives them a hard time? Yeah, or? generally it's just the groin site. Yeah. Um, the actual sheath is, is big. It's bigger than a, than a femoral arterial line, mm. but it's, it's really the same size as a lot of the uh, cardiology procedural sheaths. Mm. So the patients after they've had one of those will often have that in their groin for four to six hours. Mm. And as long as they're not moving extensively, it's not very painful at all. And they can't sit up too much, I would imagine, because no. they're kinking at the groin. And that's one of the keys we'll talk about later mm. in, in the, you know, the balloon pump for non-cardiac anesthesia is we do have to be careful with positioning of the mm. leg and positioning of the body in relation to sitting up and okay. flexing. Great, thank you. 
So look, with regards to the mistiming of the balloon, as we've said previously, there are links to some fantastic resources that specifically show diagrams of the arterial waveforms for each of the asynchronous balloon pump situations. So be sure to check them out because sometimes a picture complements the words. Mm. So there's one other situation in which the balloon pump function is suboptimal. Okay. And occasionally there can be poor diastolic augmentation despite optimal timing. And what we see in the patient's arterial pressure waveform is that the augmentation peak pressure just isn't as high as we'd like it to be. In this instance, coronary blood flow is still likely increased, but it's not ideal. And this can occur for a number of reasons. So the main one is that patients have a very poor cardiac output. So if the stroke volume decreases, then there may simply be just too little blood within the aorta for the balloon to, to mm. displace. Mm. Another very common one there would be decreased systemic vascular resistance or decreased elastic recoil of the aorta, which is what the balloon relies on to assist with augmentation of the Windkessel effect. Other things where diastolic augmentation is not ideal are when the balloon may be too small for the patient, or it can be positioned either too high or too low in the aorta. Mm. Sometimes the helium pressure can have dropped so that the balloon is not filling completely, and sometimes the balloon can even be not completely out of its sheath so that the tail doesn't inflate properly. Mm. So when you talk about the elastic recall of the, the aorta, is having like an EVAR or something in, is that a contraindication to having a balloon pump? It's not a contraindication because by then the EVAR will have endothelialized mm. and you may not gain the elastic recoil effect on the mm. aorta as before, okay. but you won't be causing any damage. Any damage. Okay. But right. definitely one of the things you have to be careful of in placement of an intra-aortic balloon pump is previous aortic or iliac surgery, mm. stents, grafts, and aortoiliac disease. Mm. So, good question. Yeah, okay. mm. Now, in reality, Ivan, when we're anesthetizing patients with balloon pumps in situ, is there anything that we have to do differently regarding the conduct of our anesthetic? Look, this is a great question because um, a number of anesthetists will be asked to do cases often after hours when no one's around on these mm. patients when they're not completely comfortable with the balloon mm -hmm. pump. So there's a couple things to remember. So one, patient positioning, and this can be an issue. Yes. So you don't want to bend the patient at the waist more than about 10, at most 15 degrees. And the reason being that you can kink off the pressure transduction line, or you can kink off the balloon gas inflation line. Either would be bad for optimal balloon function. Mm -hmm. In addition, you have to raise the question of anticoagulation. Yeah. So if the balloon pump has been in for an extended period of time, the patient may be in need um, of anticoagulation and they may have been placed on some form of either antiplatelet agent or a heparin and you have to take this into account for your surgical procedure. Mm. Might it need reversal? If you don't think about it, you may not know. Mm. Then be wary of bleeding at the balloon insertion site. This site can ooze blood and it can ooze it for days. Mm. And so if it's a hidden area, you can have hidden areas of blood loss if your hemoglobin is falling interoperatively. Mm. Interesting. Now just also remember that the balloon can also impede blood flow to the leg. Mm. So if you bend the patient, then you're in surgery and you have a drape on yeah. and you're struggling with an acidosis or worsening lactate levels, consider limb ischemia. Mm. Is it a problem? Mm. And then finally, we want to try and avoid tachydysrhythmias because severe tachycardias or other dysrhythmias will affect the function of the balloon pump optimally. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Mm. Now, Ivan, how do intra-aortic balloon pumps differ from the newer impeller devices? Well, the impeller is a catheter-based 
miniaturized ventricular assist device, and it pumps blood from the left ventricle into the ascending aorta and is responsible for generating a systemic circulation. Um, and it has an upper rate, upper flow rate of two and a half to five liters per minute. Wow, that's significant. Yeah, this increases far more than you'll see with a balloon pump, mm. where the increase in cardiac output is modest, usually no more than usually half a liter per minute. Oh, wow. So there's some, some similarities between an impella and a balloon pump. It's, uh, it's generally inserted in the femoral artery under fluoroscopic or toe guidance, similarly to the balloon pump. And in some instances, it's placed surgically by cardiothoracic surgeons. Mm. Its function is managed by a portable mobile console that displays the invasive pressures and the pump function. And many of the indications for the device are the same. Mm. Acute myocardial infarction, cardiogenic shock, facilitation of high-risk percutaneous interventions, cardiomyopathies with acute decompensation, and post-cardiotomy cardiogenic shock. Mm. So many of the physiological outcomes of the device are the same. So you have unloading of the left ventricle and causing a decrease in left ventricular work and myocardial oxygen demand, increased cardiac output and MAP, improved coronary perfusion and coronary blood flow, and decreased pulmonary wedge pressures, and a secondary reduction in right ventricular afterload. Mm. However, there are a bunch of differences as well. So yes, the impella achieves many of the same physiological outcomes as a balloon pump, but it does it through a different mechanism. The impella pump is placed so that it sits directly across the aortic valve, and its shape, the pigtail shape of the catheter, facilitates the crossing of the aortic valve during insertion. Now, once activated, the impella device will continually draw blood from the left ventricle via the inlet port, and it will expel it into the ascending aorta via the outlet port. So in reality, mm. its function is actually more similar to a ventricular assist device mm. than it is to an intra-aortic balloon pump. Mm. Okay, so it strikes me a bit like a like a hose that's kind of sucking blood from the left ventricle and then depositing it out the other end at the aorta. Yeah, look, that's a great way of thinking about it. Um, the impella's design, interestingly enough, was based on the Archimedes screw, which was developed by the Greek hmm. mathematician when he was living in Egypt back in 250 BC, mm. and this device was used then to pump water to higher locations. Mm, that's so cool. So look, again, I just want to draw attention to the links in our episode description where you can find a short two-minute video illustrating in simple terms how an impeller functions, so be sure to check it out. Now, before we end our episode, we have one more question for you, Ivan. What have you learned in anesthesia this week? Um, well, this is a funny one. I learned that even the most confident anesthetists can be um, worried and scared about an anesthetic when they, oh. when they have one coming up. <laughs> yeah. And um, especially when you do, don't do something very frequently. Oh, yes. And I had a case frequently, uh, or recently, that I um, had concerns about, and I had concerns about my own ability to carry it out. So the thing I learned, or I, I had reinforced in me this week, is that you should never be afraid to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And there is confidence and there is safety yes. uh, in having someone nearby who you trust. And so uh, don't be afraid to ask someone for help. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good lesson for all of us, yeah. to be honest. Wise words, I <laughs> wise words.
So, look, we find ourselves uh, once again at the end of a really interesting and informative episode. I think I said this last time we spoke to you, Ivan, but if only this podcast had existed when I before I did my cardiac term, oh, no. might have been a little bit less muffety. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for joining us again, and we look forward to talking with you in the future. Oh. Uh, we're going to be joining you again later in the season, I believe, or you'll be joining us, which is very exciting. I've, I've heard the rumour, and um, I'm going to fair warning, though, once I get going, as you know, I'm tough to stop. So. <laughs> Join the club. Join the club. Those who know me well. <laughs> well, it's been an intense but interesting discussion this week on deep breaths. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. And if you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee, please let us know. Be sure to recommend us to your colleagues. You can find us on your usual podcast platform. Thanks for listening, and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths. Deep breaths.